We'll be in Luke chapter 23. Now, if you're using one of these Bibles, it's on chapter, um, not chapter, uh, on page 737. Now, if you don't have one, feel free to get up. There are some Bibles on the back. You're welcome to go, get some coffee, come back, um, and follow with us. Um, I'll be reading um, a long passage right now. It's kind of starts with um, the last few moments of the life of Jesus uh, before his crucifixion. So verse 26, Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. And put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and, the, and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things when the, the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there huddled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, 
he breathes his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, many of you already know, um, I did not grow up as a follower of Christ. Actually, I only started uh, exploring my spirituality and my faith when I was 18. So I grew up in a non-religious family, um, and the reality of it was that we were non-religious, but we did some things very religiously. Uh, we rooted for our local soccer team, which I'm so excited we're going to have a soccer team in Nashville, and I'll be able to religiously train my kids into being fans of that team. We also religiously watched Formula One racing, which is basically NASCAR with more curves. You know, just kind of go around. And we also religiously went to the coast, you know, to the ocean for our family vacations. Now, even within Brazilian standards, we were not a religious bunch. I remember when I was a kid, and some of my friends were going to catechism, which is basically like, you know, classes for children before they do their first communion. So my friends were going to catechism, and I went to my parents and asked them, hey, mom, hey, dad, um, so-and-so is going to catechism. Should I go? And they asked me if I wanted to go. Now, I have to say this. I'm, I'm, I was a good kid, but I was not that good. Uh, so I decided to not go to catechism and stay in flight kites. And I did that, and I really enjoyed it. Now, the reality of it is that by not growing up knowing much about the Christian faith that was all around me, I had very warped and basic understanding of basic things about uh, Christianity. I remember before 18, I knew that God was a creator. And that was pretty much it. I didn't know that even Jesus was God. I also remember that Mary, for some reason, was the mother of Jesus. And then I knew that Jesus was her son and he was dead. I wanted to show a picture um, that exemplifies the core of my understanding of the Christian faith up to my age of 18. Now, this is Michelangelo's uh, Fiorentine Pieta. It is located in the Vatican at St. Peter's Cathedral. I've never been there. I've never seen this statue, the actual statue, in person. But I'll be honest with you, every single church that I've walked into up to the age of 18 in my life had a statue very similar to this, if not identical. And the image I had was that you can see Mary, and the only understanding of, that, of Jesus was that he was dead. That's it. Jesus was the dead guy. That's it. Now, you can imagine at the age of 18, and I'm now exploring you know, my faith and trying to understand this, 
And I start reading scriptures and realize that so much in scriptures is about a living guy. That was all about starting a movement of service for others. So, as you can imagine, I was very confused. Now, if we're honest, and you can put it down, we do not see statues like this when we come to church, right? Marathon, you know, it's not something we do. And to be honest, when I came to the U.S. from Brazil in 2000, I don't think I've ever walked into a church that had a piedra like that. And I would assume that most of us then would have an expectation that we have a better understanding of Jesus. But during a season like this, we are about to approach Easter, it's really easy for us to start focusing a lot more on Jesus' death and minimize or even de-emphasize his life. It's really hard for us during this season to have an understanding of both of those together. I'll argue that you can only make sense of Jesus' death if we understand well how that fits into his life. Now, when we think about Jesus' life, we know that he was all about gospel, good news, evangelium. Now, when we hear that, all of us have a message and understanding. And I want you to hear from Jesus' word what he meant or what he thought his life was about. So if you have a Bible with you, we'll be in Matthew 11. Now, on this Bible, it's on page 682. So it's going to be Matthew 11, verses 2 through 5. And there, what we'll find is a, an exchange between John the Baptist, a prophet, a precursor to Jesus, someone that came before Jesus, and he sent someone to check in on Jesus and say, hey, are you doing your job? So let's read. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 5. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the, dead, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus saw his time on earth as good news. It was really, really good news for those who are suffering. It was all about an understanding that his presence on this earth was about goodness, was about God engaging with humanity and bringing transformation to this humanity. Now, this transformation is something new. It's a movement from living life for myself to a life that is characterized by living life for someone else. 
We have always have that choice every day. I can live my life for myself or I can live my life for others. Now, this is at the core of our understanding of Jesus. That he came, he lived a life for others to the point of death. Now, if you think about it, we might have a problem with that, especially in our modern society and culture. Many skeptics have raised the question about how does it work that somebody else can live for me? How can someone else do something for me? Now, let me read what a skeptic wrote about Jesus. He wrote, How can my guilt be atoned or amended or repaired by the death of someone guiltless? What primitive concepts of guilt and righteousness lie behind such notion? What a primitive concept of God. If what is said about Christ's atoning death is that is to be understood in terms of the idea of sacrifice, what kind of primitive mythology is it according to which a divine being who has become man atones with his blood for the sins of humanity? How is it possible? Now, that conflict exists because we, as modern people, believe and rely a whole lot on autonomy. Now, as a psychologist and as a counselor, one of my top ethical principles is that of autonomy. The idea that you have the control over the direction of your own life. We value that. So when we hear that someone else is taking my place, that creates a conflict. How can those two things be possible? Now, I'd like to slow down here and talk about a theological concept that you know, the, um, the skeptic brought up, and that is the idea of atonement. For many of us, we have a very limited or narrow view of what atonement is and means, and that's why sometimes it becomes really easy to become skeptic of the whole concept of Jesus atoning or taking my place. So atonement is a theological term that today tends to be understood as the service or action by which a debt is paid, or it is the punish, punishment imposed by a judge as retribution for a crime. Now, that creates an issue when we think of atonement as transactional, because it leads us to believe or have to answer yes to the question, does God want to punish us? Does God want to punish us? Right? If you have a very narrow view of atonement, your answer has to be yes. I would argue that that is not what the Bible, the only way the Bible is describing it. And I would say that to answer that question is that God does not 
want to punish us. So what does the Bible say about atonement? And I'll start with the definition, and then we can build on this idea. So atonement is nothing but representation carried to the ultimate. Now, basically, you have a representative, think of a person, acting as a substitute that extends even to death. That is, death for others. Now, this concept is not new in scriptures. You can look back in the Old Testament and you will find several representatives. Think of Moses. Moses becomes a representative of the people in front of God. Now, the issue here is this. Moses is the representative, but he himself does not completely take the place of the people in the sense that they still have to have their own faith. They still need to engage with God themselves, but Moses become that representative. Think of Jesus. Jesus is the tip of the spear, and we follow right behind him. It does not take away our movement toward God, but the representative becomes that tip of the spear. Now, I'd like to pause, kind of time out, and just say that the skeptic within me, when he hears this, he has some problems. Now, the issue here is this. This really sounds like, you know, those old uh, religions in which we evolved from because it kind of sounds like, you know, you have this sacrifice so that I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm scot-free. I'm, you know, free from any responsibility. So Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm good. Just move on. And that just doesn't sound right. It actually really sounds like a transaction. I would say that the Bible says something a little deeper than that. In the biblical sense, atonement makes way for the people to relate to God in spite of their holiness. So what you have here is a substitute that leads, but then we as people, we follow not because we have earned it, but we follow because we are invited. We are welcomed. It is all about God's holiness and willingness to move toward his people, not us sacrificing or having a sacrifice that will elevate us to the holiness of God. It's actually God moving toward us, which leads to another skeptic voice in my head. Now you can see that I have really a lot of trouble with skepticism. And this is the question I have, is if everything comes from God, and it comes from God's initiative, why is there any need for atonement at all? If God himself has created atonement in the same way that he has created forgiveness, 
Why not simply forgive? Why not just simply say, you know, it's all good. Now, I believe that that answer is above my pay grade, so um, I, I want to bring in an author that has really helped me kind of think through this, even prepare for this sermon, uh, Dr. Lofink. And this is what he said. This is his answer that I think is really powerful. If I simply say God forgives everything on the condition that I acknowledge my guilt, the reality of sin is too quickly covered up. The consequences of sin are not really taken seriously. Sin does not just vanish in the air even when it is forgiven. Because sin does not end with the sinner. It has consequences. It always has a social dimension. Every sin embeds itself in human community. It corrupts a part of the world and creates a damaged environment. Even if God has forgiven all sin, the consequences of sin are not limited. What Adolf Hitler set in motion was by no means eliminated from the world by his death in April 1945. Even if he was contrite, and even if he himself was forgiven, the fearful consequences of national socialism poisoned society until today. I resonated really deeply with that idea. That sounds really true to me. That my sin is not only individual. My sin is not contained by a bubble around me. My sin is social. It impacts other people. It has consequences that are way outside of my ability to contain. Now, let me pause here. Does any of you guys speak Swedish? No? It's impossible. I really wanted somebody that spoke Swedish. Let me put the other slide on. It would help me pronounce this name. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you ever had trouble pronouncing somebody's name, there is a website that you can go. And people from that country, they will pronounce that name for you. But, you know, they, they don't tell you if you're pronouncing it right, though. You know, it's like, but since you guys don't speak Swedish, you won't know. But this is a quote from Dag. That's what it said. Hammer's jolt. Sounds good to me. Now, um, Dag was the second secretary general of the UN. And he wrote this on his journal on Easter 1960. And this is what he said. Forgiveness, forgiveness bre breaks the chain of causality because he who forgives you out of love takes upon himself the consequences of what you have done. Forgiveness, therefore, always entails sacrifice. 
the price you must pay for your own liberation through another sacrifice is what you do in turn, and that is, you do in turn, must be willing to liberate in the same way, irrespective of the consequences to yourself. This is the idea of representative atonement. The idea that love forgives, but it cannot forgive the consequences of sin because there are long since bared in society and in history. So, we are left with this concept. Now, this is what Jesus said that many of us will uh, resonate. Remember when Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, during his prayer, and he encouraged us to forgive, to ask God to forgive our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. The reality of Jesus being our representative is that he began a movement in which now we have the space not just to receive forgiveness, but also to extend it. It does not end with us. It flips evil upside down because now we have a tool out of love in which we can engage the consequences of sin in real time, in real life. God is not content with merely forgiving us. He wants our transformation. Now, I would assume that many of us are thinking, so what now? What do we do with that? How do we place that into our actual reality? And I would say this, the first thing, is that to be part of this movement, there is a realization that the power to do this is not human power. I believe that it has to be divine, godly intervention. There is no power on this earth that can give us the strength to take on the responsibility of somebody else's sin when they sin against us and then return that with goodness. We don't have that power. We rely on divine power. But practically speaking, it, it does happen when we change the way we think. Now, it may be that you might have to engage with someone that sinned against you. It may be that you will have to understand that in the same way that you were hurt, you may move into healing. In Ephesians, there's a passage that I believe is, um, it speaks directly and very practically to this. And it starts with something like this. Paul, the author, is asking or telling uh, his followers to put off their old self and put on a new self. He is asking them to not sin when they are angry, but when they are angry, to not just, you know, go to sleep on their anger, just kind of, you know, go on and talk to that person, which is a really hard passage when you're married, you know, because the other person is right there. You know, you can't even 
you know, have the excuse, you know, you know, I called or I texted, they didn't, no, they're right there. You may just wake them up and say, hey, I was wrong. I hurt you. Does that make sense? You know, that, that's reality. That's like the real deal. But then he says this on Ephesians 4, uh, verse 27 and 28. Do not give the devil a foothold. Everyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, this is very practically speaking. You can put your own struggle, your own sin, if it's not stealing, in there. And think about it in this way. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been, and you put your sin there, you must no longer. You must do work or do the opposite sometimes. For me, a lot of times is the opposite. Doing something useful with my own hands, with my own life. And here's the key, because it doesn't stop with me. My sin doesn't stop with me. So I use my own and our own transformation for the sake and the good of others. That they may have something to share with those in need. Look around. There are many people in need. Now, we'll go into communion right now. And maybe you came with someone and you have an opportunity to share with that person. Maybe you didn't. And... You may just have met someone. It might not be the, you know, the time to just kind of share your deepest, most secret sin. But it might be a beginning. You may allow the door to start to be open, to realize that your sin is not just individual or personal. And as we go into communion and as you're talking to your uh, friends, your family. I want you to think about these two questions. How can you follow Jesus in disrupting the cycle of sin by forgiving those who sinned against you? How can you f- move toward turning upside down the cycle of sin by engaging with the community that maybe or maybe was hurt by your sin. I was talking to my wife about this and this idea of historical sin and just the fact that we benefit so much from the sin of those who have come before us. This land, you know, so much wealth, so much of it we benefit and so many people have been hurt. How can we engage, realizing that sin doesn't stop with us? Let's stand. I'll pray for us, and then we'll go into communion. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you and we realize that you are all-powerful, that you welcome us into your presence, and that whatever sacrifice that we do on this earth is not that we may be elevated into your holiness, but it is because we've been deeply touched by your forgiveness that we are willing to forgive those who have hurt us. Help us, Father, engage with one another, with our community, with our world, realizing that our life in you is not ours anymore, that it's yours, and that we live for those who are suffering and those who may benefit from your goodness. Father, thank you. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.